Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Bridge? Well, I have a little work to finish up. Then I'm going to my cabin. I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to turn on my personal relaxation light. And I'm going to lose myself in the pages of some old novel. So, Dan, I always like it when we have fresh meat and a Star Trek author. And that's what we're doing on today's show. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Positively Trek. This is our book club episode. I'm Bruce Gibson with Dan Gunther. How are you doing, Dan? Hey, Bruce. Doing well. Really excited to, as you say, talk with uh, a brand new author to the Star Trek universe. Uh, a very accomplished author in her own right, but new to our little world of Star Trek tie-in fiction. So very, very excited anytime there's a new voice in the Star Trek literary universe. And who might that be but Cassandra Rose Clark. Happy to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Welcome to the show. Very happy to have you here. Thank you. You wrote Star Trek The Next Generation, Shadows Have Offended. And I have to say, I was not offended by this book. <laughs> okay, that's very good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, welcome to the show. So, those of our listeners who are not familiar with your works, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the other books you've written before we get into this one? Sure. Um, so, I am a science fiction and fantasy novelist. Um, I have published several books. I think at this point, it's up to 10. It's so many that I don't have the exact number. Um, and I probably should count it up at some point. Um, but I've written kind of across genres and across age groups. So I have some YA novels out. I have adult novels out. I've written science fiction. I've written fantasy. Um, I even have a poetry book out. So I, I do a lot. I kind of do a lot of different types of writing. Um, and this is my first Star Trek book, um, which was very exciting. I've also written in the Halo universe. So I've done some other tie-in work as well. Excellent. So do you find a big, a significant difference between writing your own fiction versus writing tie-in fiction? Yeah, I mean, like the basics are the same, like you still want to have, you know, that plot character setting stuff that that kind of just general craft stuff is obviously going to be the same. Um, but you are working within sort of stricter parameters. You can't just do whatever you want. Um, and that was especially true with the Star Trek, the Star Trek book, um, because they have a very set world and there's lots of expectations that fans have. Um, so I have to kind of reel in my own sort of quirks and character styles because it's like, no, I'm not writing my own character. I'm writing Dr. Crusher, who's a very established character. I'm writing Troy, is a very established character. Um, so that's kind of the biggest difference, I think, is that you have somebody there who is saying, no, this isn't canon, or the characters would never do this, like that kind of thing. Whereas when it's my own world, I get to me, I'm that person. Um, so I think that's the biggest difference, although I wouldn't call it a challenge. Um, I actually kind of enjoy having those restrictions. Um, because it sort of forces me to think differently than I would otherwise. So I, I would think you would be kind of nervous about writing a Star Trek novel because 
there is that established fan base that knows like all the details and everything. And you <laughs> don't want to get something wrong because somebody's going to call you out on it. Or do you know Star Trek so well that you felt very comfortable with that? So I love Star Trek um, and I love TNG, but I was terrified. <laughs> like it was a lot, I felt like there was a lot of pressure um, writing a TNG book because of that, because of the fan base. Um, and I know, I mean, I love, like I said, I love Star Trek too, um, but I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a real nitpicky fan, um, but I know that Star Trek is sort of famous for its its nitpicky fans. And so I always had, I always had like the Star Trek guy kind of in the back of my head as I was writing this book, like, well, and blah, 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 this never happened. <laughs> so like, I definitely, there was, it was, there was, there was a lot of pressure writing this that I actually did not experience with Halo um, because I, that, that that particular uh, fandom doesn't have sort of the reputation that Star Trek has. Um, so I was definitely, when the book came out, I was definitely kind of nervous and, you know, checking my Twitter mentions like, oh, is this going to be the time I check it? And I find out I got something totally wrong. Um, but so far I haven't seen anything, um, which is good. <laughs> well, I don't know, Dan, you know, everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, I I don't know, I don't know what you mean. Star Trek fans, of course, are famously just uh, totally laid back and casual, and <laughs> no, but you know, speaking as some would say, one of those Uber fans that you know all the details and stuff. I love this novel. I thought it was uh, very good and fit very very well, especially in that season seven TNG uh, era that. Uh, that you chose for the story. So yeah, no complaints for me on that part. It was very excellent. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm really happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto here. But like I said, Dan knows it better than I do. So if it passed the Dan test, you're good. <laughs> I think you're good. And I also noticed, and Dan and I talked about this the other day, you've worked in a couple of 47s into mm -hmm. the book. So right. good for you. <laughs> I'll let people figure out where those are. Just look for them. Little hidden Easter eggs there. So let me ask, how you, did you get involved in this? Did you ask to write a Star Trek novel or did they approach you? How'd that end up happening? So they actually approached me um, because of my Halo novels. Um, so I, I had the opportunity to write in the Halo universe and the editor who works on the Star Trek tie-ins, um, he read my Halo books and really liked them. And so he invited me to write Star Trek. Um, I met him at a, it was, there was a Halo convention that was going on a couple of years ago um, that I got to attend and he was there and he was like, Hey, so do you like Star Trek? And I was like, do I like Star Trek? Yes, I love Star Trek. <laughs> and then he was like, do you like the next generation? And I was like, that's my favorite one. Um, so it just sort of worked out. Um, and I was really, it, I never would have dreamed, honestly, that I would get to write a TNG book, especially like a standalone, like the ones, because I used to read the, the standalone TNG books from the 90s when I was a little younger. And I never dreamed I would get to write one. So it was really exciting when he asked me. Yeah, and this is definitely a bit of a, I, I guess you could say a throwback to those types of books because the literary universe in more recent years has been this kind of post-series tied together continuity. And this is one of the first in many years where they go back and do a standalone novel set during the series. So it sounds like it was right in your wheelhouse and, and the kind that you enjoy. Yeah, definitely. Um, and th that was actually their suggestion that they wanted to do a standalone, um, which I was excited about because I haven't been keeping up with the literary uh, canon, the literary universe in the last few years. Um, 
But I was like, that's perfect because those were the ones I loved reading those just sort of standalone books that were like an extra episode, um, which was sort of how I approached it when I was writing it. it was you know, okay, I, I basically get to write Star Trek episodes. So what do I want to have happen? And then how did you decide what to happen? Because you do focus a lot on Crusher and Troy and also Worf. So you had to make that decision of, I guess, maybe when to place the story in that timeline and then what characters to focus on. Right. Well, I, I wanted, I kind of went into it. I wanted to write about um, Crusher and Troy um, just because I like to write about women and they're the two, they're the two girls. Right. <laughs> um, so um, I, I knew I wanted to write a story that was sort of focused on them and got to, we get to see them do, um, do some stuff. Um, and then the, the sort of plot was just sort of me spitballing ideas um, and just kind of thinking, okay, what, what kind of stuff can I have happen here? Um, and I, when I need a plot idea, for some reason, I always go to, there's a mysterious illness and how can we deal with that? And that sort of fits with Crusher. Um, and when I was outlining this, it was right at the start of the pandemic as well. Um, so that kind of sort of came in um, with the Crusher plot line where they're on the planet and um, there's, there's mysterious stuff happening. Uh, <clears throat> and I always like that. I always like those kind of episodes where it was sort of like a mystery, like mysterious things are happening. What's going on? What's the logical explanation for this? Um, so that's sort of how I got to the Crusher, um, the Crusher storyline. Um, the Troy storyline, the sort of Troy Wharf storyline just sort of comes from my love of Beta Zed and Beta Zoids and Loxana Troy, um, who I just, I think she's really fun. I know a lot of people complain about her character but I have always, she was always one of my favorite characters because I thought she was funny um and I really love sort of the the betazoid just like over the top like weird arist aristocratic culture that they had so I wanted to write something where I got to really sort of play around with that um and maybe explore that world a little bit more um, and so that's kind of where I came up with the Troy one. And then I was like, okay, now I got to figure out sort of some way to kind of tie these together thematically. I, I love when the back cover blurb was released a while ago and it said uh, basically a cultural ceremony on Beta Z. And I went, oh, I think we're getting looks on a Troy. I bet you anything. <laughs> I just want to compliment you on how you wrote her character, too, because sometimes we'll read in some novels where her character is a little over the top because she can be so fun to write. But you brought her down some to be believable to me, to be in the role that she is and to be in charge of a house that when things become serious and when she's dealing with other Betazoids, that she can take an authority role in that. And I really enjoyed that. She was still fun, but she you kept her just under that that level of craziness. Well, that's, that's awesome because that was definitely my goal with her um, because, I mean, she's an ambassador. So it's like clearly she's got power she's clearly a professional woman um and i feel like you see you see more of that um in uh, ds9 that kind of comes to the front so i was sort of inspired by her um her depictions in ds9 um but yeah i was definitely going for that so i'm really glad that that was successful yeah and i, I love that picard comes to that realization too there there's that moment where he's like huh well I guess, yeah, she is an ambassador. I'm, I'm impressed with her ability to do it. Like, yeah. yeah, like, obviously. <laughs> well, we are going to get into spoilers a little later, as if people have read the book. But before we get to that, talking about the Beta Z story and the artifacts, why don't you give us that whole setup? 
Um, so yeah, so in the in the book, there's basically this big cultural ceremony um, that is sort of centered around and these these important Betazoid cultural artifacts are going to be basically presented together for the first time. Um, and there's some elaborate like Betazoid shenanigans that explains why they've never been displayed together. Um, <clears throat> and so it's this huge ceremony that was super fun to write, like coming up with all the weird like celebratory things that the Betazoids would be doing. Um, and so there's a lot of buildup. There, there's this big pageant. They're gonna, they we're gonna reveal them. And when the curtains or the lights go up, and the curtains, theoretically or sort of metaphorically go up, the artifacts are gone. Um, and so it becomes sort of this trying to solve a heist um, and figure out where they've gone, who took them. Um, and of course, all the Betazoids are freaking out because these are super important artifacts. So that's that's kind of the setup for that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I noticed that we'll get to the second storyline and that setup, but I noticed how both have mysteries. And I liked how you said earlier, how you always start things with kind of like, well, what would be the mystery of this? And it felt like there were two parallel mysteries going, but I will have to say, I'm not usually very good at deciding who done it. You know, I'm not very good right. without who done it and stuff. And I was trying in this one. I'm like, I'm going to figure this out early. And of course I was wrong. I, I wasn't even close. So Dan, how did you do? Did you try to figure out? Uh, I was kind of more just along for the ride. I, I, I figured it would be, we, we recently read another book with kind of a, a whodunit mystery kind of thing. And I just always get burned because I always craft these theories. I'm like, nah, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let the, this book take me on the ride with this one. So, but yeah, no, I love those kind of, uh, I, I guess it's almost like a locked room mystery, right? Like, cause they're supposed to be behind this force field and how could this happen? I really enjoyed that mystery and, and the, the characters working to figure that out. Uh, and Picard's role in it too, where he kind of keeps getting roped back into having to remain on beta Z and he really wants to go back to the ship, but you know, he's continually frustrated. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Nothing's more fun than putting Picard in a situation where he's uncomfortable. <laughs> that is definitely true. <laughs> so tell us about the other storyline. We have Riker and Crusher and Data that go on this away mission to a planet. Right. So um, basically they, they have to go to, the, there's this planet that is, it's sort of in the final stages of being prepared for some colonists who are currently homeless. Um, and they had the, the away team that was on, or the, the science team that was on that planet, uh, they lost their commanding officer in an accident. Um, so Riker and Crusher and Data go along, along with a couple of incense, because I just felt like writing some incense in there. Um, they go to sort of help with these final preparations. And while they're there, weird things start happening um, that seem to be tied to a beach that's near the science station. Um, and at first it seems like some kind of illness that uh, affects the biological members of the crew, but then data starts getting affected as, as well as the sort of technology that's in the station. Um, and so Crusher is trying to figure out what's going on. She doesn't know if it's a biological illness, which would be of course her forte. Uh, is it something, you know, mechanical, what's happening? Um, and so the mystery there is try to figure out, figure out what is this, what's causing it? Um, and, you know, there's that pressure of how did we not notice this before when it's in the final stages of being ready for for colonists who are literally waiting to move on to the planet. Yeah, I was kind of tripping at that point. <laughs> 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 because, uh, yeah, they're having like 
everybody's getting sick and then they're having dreams and it's like, okay, there's some kind of weird virus or something going on. And then data starts having problems and machinery is having problems, all this technology. I'm like, well, wait, how can something affect them and the technology all at the same time? And that's when I started tripping. You know, I, I thought maybe I was on the beach. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we're going to start now getting into the spoilerish territory here. So where, how did you come up with that kind of idea? So that was um, the, the seed of that was when I first got this assignment, um, I was going through a phase where I was really into sort of cosmic horror stuff. Um, and I wanted to write sort of a cosmic or like Star Trek version of cosmic horror. And so that was sort of the seed of that was for them to be having these strange sort of unknowable, unexplainable experiences. And then of course, since it's Star Trek, it can't be some like eldritch deity or whatever. Um, but there's a logical um, sort of wholesome explanation for it um, that we get at the end. But that was kind of the seed was wanting to have just something that just felt totally irrational and strange and then the crew having to work through that to figure out what's actually going on yeah i really appreciated this story it was uh i feel like star trek sometimes doesn't go far enough in like how alien and how different situations and 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 beings out there would be and this one felt like sufficiently mysterious and stuff. And even by the end, you know, we, we get kind of an explanation and, and that sort of thing, but they're still so different from us that, you know, there, there's the thought that, well, this communication probably violates the prime directive and, and that kind of thing. But they're just, they're so different that like, we probably just have to leave them completely alone because there's that, that, common ground between us is so far apart. I, I thought that was really interesting. And I love when, when those kind of boundaries are tested a bit. Awesome. Thank you. I, I love writing, just trying to write the most inhuman aliens I possibly can, um, like in my own writing. Um, so it was five. I was like, well, if I'm writing Star Trek, I got to try to do that um, because they're going to be interacting with aliens. Um, so yeah, that was definitely something I was going for. So let's get into the aliens then. Like I said, we're in spoiler territory. We're just going to assume that at this point, anybody who's listening has read the book or just wants to know everything about the book. <laughs> but what what are these aliens? Like, I, I mean, I remember you talking about the fossils. So, mm -hmm. you know, are they just like these energy beings or is there some type of physical form that they're working through? So the idea behind them is that they are a hive mind. They're sort of these microscopic organisms that live on the beach. Um, and they're, they have a physical, they have a sort of a physicality, but when they're taken away from the others, they basically become sort of ossified. And so that's why they were showing up as fossils um, <clears throat> because I don't know. I thought it sounded cool. Basically <laughs> there was a lot of rule of cool going on. Um, but the way they sort of inhabit this sort of shared dreamscape. Um, so the, the hallucinations on the beach were them trying to communicate with the crew and sort of trying to bring them into this shared dreamscape um, where that they sort of inhabit where they live. Um, like, so they, they physically live sort of in the water and in the sand, but they really live sort of in this shared dreamscape. Um, and so the reason they hadn't been picked up before was because there wasn't enough, there weren't enough crew members um, because they're a hive mind. So when they see individuals, they see them as dead or as fossilized. 
Um, and so when, but when the, you have it, they have the extra crew members there. So they're like, oh, these are living things. We need to try to communicate with them. And when that failed, they started to see the technology as living things because all of the technology in Star Trek, there's that AI that's linked. And they're like, oh, maybe this is actually the intelligent being um, because it's linked the way we're linked. Um, so that was kind of what was going on in my head. Um, it was definitely kind of a challenge because I didn't want to have them explain that, um, because they wouldn't see it that way. Um, because again, they're supposed to be completely inhuman, um, in their thinking. So, um, that was definitely kind of a challenge with writing them, but that was sort of what I was imagining going on in my head, um, is that they're, the, the, the core idea is that they're a hive mind. And so, Nobody, they, they just didn't, they were just dormant and didn't try to communicate until the crew, the more crew arrived. And they were so strange that they didn't pick up on the scans. Was it more that mm. they sensed the crew as a hive or did they see them? Because if they, if they could also visualize and see this hive of people, what did they think of data? Yeah, that's actually a good question that I didn't think about. Um, I was I was kind of imagining them as, as sort of seeing them and maybe sort of picking up on their brain waves. Um, and so data wasn't registering as being like the others. And so, at, or at least at first, he wasn't like the others, so he must be separate. But he was similar enough to the sort of technology um, that they saw him as part of that sort of AI system um and again i'm definitely sort of um what's the word um <laughs> techno babbling a little bit but i feel like that's a classic trick trope so oh yes <laughs> <laughs> totally i also feel like it, it follows a bit in the star trek tradition of of kind of this trope that i like that comes up a lot where some advanced life form or or being doesn't see like our crew or or people as true life forms and i'm thinking back to like viger in the motion picture who sees like the enterprise as a life form but they're infested by these weird biological units or something i always like that when you know there's that misunderstanding both on our part like the crew they don't recognize this as a life form but the life form also sees these people walking around and they're like well those those can't actually be alive that doesn't make any sense i i love that yeah, I, I've always liked that trope too. Um, and one of the things I love about Star Trek is that it always sort of ends with some attempt at understanding. Um, whereas I feel in other in other stories that would result in war, death, or you know, hor- horrible things. But I like in Star Trek how it always somehow it kind of works out. And even if we don't totally understand each other, um, we recognize we don't understand each other and we are willing to move forward. Is that an aspect of Star Trek that you've fallen in love with? I mean, what is it that you really like about Star Trek? Yeah, that definitely is. Um, I mean, Star Trek is sort of my ultimate comfort watching. Like if I'm feeling down, um, I will just put on TNG. Um, and there's, there's, there's like, there's streaming services um, that I, I have this free streaming service where they just show Star Trek. Like they have like channels and it's just Star Trek. Like, 24 seven. And so I'll sometimes just put it on and just have it in the background. Um, But yeah, that's, I think that's why it's so comforting to me um, is because it's so positive. Um, I mean, appropriately for this um, podcast name. (laughs) 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 um, It does, it depicts such a positive view of the future and especially that it's sort of post post apocalyptic. Right. So we had that sort of apocalypse, human humanity at least had that apocalypse. 
um, and then we were able to overcome it. And I love, and then I just, there's something so satisfying, particularly in TNG, how conflicts are often solved with um, diplomacy rather than with fighting. Um, and that was always something I loved about TNG. I always loved the episodes where they get out of a fix because Picard talks, right? Like Picard, Picard has to be sort of the diplomat um, and is able to sort of work, kind of make this compelling case. Um, and that's something that I love about TNG specifically, but just sort of Star Trek overall is definitely that sort of positive positivity and sort of just wholesomeness of it um, that at the end of the day, is different as we are, like we can still find that common ground. Uh, so going back to uh, the, the story here and specifically the, the characters you're kind of writing about, uh, what was it like to, so you, you've watched these characters on TV, you're big fans of them. What was it like to kind of speak in the voice of, of Deanna Troy or Worf or Dr. Crusher? I just, I've, I've, I've always had this dream of like, creating the words that these characters say. And I wonder if you might give some uh, insight into what that experience was like. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and it was, it was definitely odd. Um, this book, I mean, it was odd and kind of challenging at first. Um, this book, I had a hard time getting started with it. Um, partially because of the pressure, but also just because of sort of what you're talking about um, where I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm so used to Picard being Picard on screen. And now I'm like, oh, I have to sort of make him Picard. He has, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not writing some character who's called Picard, but has a completely different personality. Like I'm actually creating this, this Picard um, or this Troy or this pressure. Um, and so that there was definitely, it was definitely kind of challenging. Um, and I definitely went back and sort of watched episodes of it um, and tried to get, I tried even just something as simple as sort of like the way they speak, the different, the actors speak, um, the way they sort of, their sort of cadence um, when they were playing those characters, trying to kind of get that into the writing. And then I was and then hope then, then kind of letting the, their personality sort of come through that and kind of going from there. Um, I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> but oh, totally. Yeah. It was, it was because it was, it was definitely a challenge for me. Yeah, because that's different from all your other books, even even the Halo books. You're not playing off of existing actors in their performances. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because the Halo books, um, the characters were all original to me. Um, even the Spartan character that I, I wrote. Um, so that was that was yeah, that was a big challenge for this one. It was very different. It was unlike anything I've ever done before. Okay, so now you're in the mind of Doctor Crusher trying to figure out this mystery with what's going on with the technology and why are things failing and why are people having these dreams and things like that? What was going on in her head as you're playing her out on the page? Yeah. So, so her, so she was really fun to write because um, she is, all these characters are hyper competent, right? Like that's one of the, the appeal of them. And so you have her in this position where she is responsible for her crew. Um, but she doesn't have all of her equipment. She doesn't have her lab. She doesn't have sort of her support system. So she's sort of limited in a way, especially once it starts affecting data, um, because obviously she's like, I'm not, you know, I know she, I know in the show, she, she examines data, but she's got Jordy there with her, I feel. Um, so it's kind of, she's like, how is she going to save, you know, save this crew, these crew members that she has. Um, so it was sort of a race against time, I think, for her to figure out what was going on before somebody got 
genuinely sick or somebody got hurt. Um, and in feeling that sort of frustration of not having her full sort of retinue of equipment and, and just resources and having to just sort of go back to basics. I, I kind of like too how she took the authority to really own this because, you know, even Riker is there, who's the first officer. And he's like, Hey, uh, let me come in there and help. No, I got this. You need to stay out, you, you know, quarantine and you know, Hey, I'm going to get, and then she's like, I'm going to go check this out. He's like, I don't know if you should. Well, I'm trying to save things. You know, I love how she's right. taken the lead. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I, def- I definitely felt like, you know, as, as, as much of it was sort of like a challenge for her, um, it is also her wheelhouse, you know, because she's a medical doctor and it, 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 at least on the surface, it feels like an illness of some sort. So um, I definitely wanted to kind of show her in that sort of medical officer role um, of being like, Hey, this is, this is medical stuff. So this is where, this is what I do. Well, and you got to create some of your own original characters too, in both storylines. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that was fun. You can always go back to them if you ever write Star Trek again. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so popping over uh, to the other storyline as well, um, I loved the uh, dynamic of Worf being in command of the Enterprise and and uh, Troy kind of being to Worf what she usually is to Picard, that kind of... Not not to mention the fact that they also have kind of an intimate relationship that's in its beginning phases here it makes for an interesting uh, period of time in their lives. Uh, specifically with Troy, one thing I noticed and I really appreciated uh, was the um, referring to her as Commander Troy more often than she usually is in the show. And like, I love TNG, but I do notice that, you know, everybody is, you know, Commander LaForge, Commander Data, and then it's Counselor Troy and Dr. Crusher, which, you know, are, you know, it's, there's, there's definitely a dividing line there with the, the two in their kind of caring capacity and stuff. And I really like the emphasis on her role as an officer in this, which I, I thought that was really cool. Awesome. Thank you. And then, yeah, you put Worf on the bridge in command. And I was just curious because there's been hints in the Picard novels that he eventually is captain of the Enterprise. Did you do that as kind of a shout out to that or just you wanted to see Worf in that situation? I just wanted to see Worf in that situation. I have no insider baseball knowledge of Star Trek. so I don't (laughs) know where they're going on the Picard show. Um, But I just thought it was kind of cool um, because I feel like he, I feel like the, sh- the series, especially DS9, he kind of starts going in that direction anyway. Um, and I thought it would be fun to kind of see him in a more, um, in that more sort of leaderly role as opposed to just being the security officer. Yeah. And speaking of Worf, why is he on the cover? Tell us about I the cover. Know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was not, in, I mean, I really loved the art design of that cover, but I was, I was not. I had no say in who they put on it. I was expecting it to be Crusher and Troy myself. So were we. (laughs) Yeah, from all of the kind of pre-release material, that's kind of what we were expecting as well, for sure. Uh, And then, of course, the content of the book, I think that would have been more appropriate personally myself. But the cover is beautiful, regardless. Well, they probably say Wharf sells, you know. Just like they say Picard's. They said they've told us, the publishers have told us and the authors have told us if you put Picard on the cover, it sells like crazy. Like that's that's the key. So <laughs> yeah. but, but you didn't that's get pro- Picard. That was, yeah, that was probably the thinking. Covers are usually a, a marketing decision, so the author never has any say in them. No. 
I, I do love putting Worf in command in this book. And it, I feel like it fits in really well with the whole season seven thing, because in earlier in that season, we get the Gambit two-parter where he's the first officer to data and kind of learns some command lessons there. So I, I think that works out well. And having Troy by his side kind of advising him really helps as well, because there's a few moments in this book where like the wharf of old would probably fight, but he he takes a step back and he kind of takes a beat and says, well, we maybe need to negotiate here, specifically dealing with, as we find out later, the Ferengi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, that was honestly the, my editor, um, they were the ones that were like, let's pull him back a little bit. Um, because I, I sometimes would, would want to make him a little more like time to jump over the bridge and start fighting. And they're like, let's pull him back. See, this is season seven. And I think that was a great note um, because I really liked kind of seeing him still be Worf, but, you know, a little more mature Worf, I guess. Yeah, he's not running around saying, today is a good day to die. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, you know, they're chasing down, you know, who stole the artifacts, but... Now, tell us about those artifacts, because the thing I like about it is there's so much value to these things, bringing them together, but at the same time, they're just common things that would have been used years ago that no one would have thought much of. Yeah, that was, to me, I felt like that was um, sort of a, that was me sort of commenting on, I guess, what, the way I see Betazoid culture, um, as they feel, the way they're shown in the shows, they feel so interested in sort of like family lines and you know because the way um Luxana Luxana always introduces herself the daughter of the house well the keeper of the sacred house all that stuff um and so it was that was really interesting to me and I, I liked the idea of these things not having sort of monetary value like value of to a Ferengi but being so valuable to the Betazoids that they're willing, they're like, let's bring in the troops. Like we need to get these things back. And I thought I was kind of seeing that um, as sort of a commentary on the Betazoids themselves. Um, But like I said, like I said earlier, I've always liked them. I always thought they were cool and just kind of trying to see what a sort that sort of, sort of vaguely aristocratic vibe that they have what that would look like in the star trek universe where again it's not going to be about sort of subjugation and that sort of thing but about sort of maintaining these stories and these cultural myths that are important to them as a people no i like that because i also like that the ferengi are involved and even troy's asking like why are you even interested in these things (laughs) you know there's no value to you about these things and and i love how this Ferengi operation are actually female Ferengi <laughs> working in the shadows because they're not allowed to be doing this in Ferengi culture. Yeah. So that was cool. I, I like seeing it. And then you get the Romulans. Well, a Romulan, at least, whatever, involved in that. So what what was the thinking behind that? Uh, well, so the, the Romulan, I was, I just needed, I needed like a villain, right? I needed somebody to, I needed someone to steal it. And, and Romulans are always fun because they're sneaky. Um, but I knew I wanted it to ultimately be Ferengi because I, I also love the Ferengi, especially the DS9 Ferengi, um, where they're a little more complicated. When this book was first announced, I actually did another podcast um, where we, we talked about different, um, a different, and I got to choose an episode and I chose the episode um where that I'm totally blanking on the name of it, of course, but it was the DS9 episode where he hires a, a female Ferengi and doesn't know, Quark hires a female Ferengi and doesn't know she's female until the end. Um, because 
they were like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with your book. And I was like, actually, <laughs> it does, <laughs> but it's a spoiler. Um, because I, I loved that in DS9, um, where you, the, the, the women Ferengi, the female Ferengi, um, start to sort of fight for their rights. And, but they, but they, what they want is to, to earn profit. Like, they still want to be Ferengi, which I think is funny. Um, so I wanted, I knew I had to kind of throw that in there because... I was, it's, a lot of this book was, oh my God, I get to write a Star Trek book. So let me cram in everything that I love about Star Trek <laughs> into this book, try to get as much in there as I possibly can, because I don't know if I'll get to write another one. Um, so I knew I had to get some female Fringies in there. <laughs> I'm going to guess that podcast was Infinite Diversity. Yes, yes, it was. Mm, yes, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It was months ago. <laughs> yep. so. They're friends of ours. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did love that twist, of course, with... Uh, first of all, that Ferengi turning out to be a, a female Ferengi. And I always hear Zek's voice in my head <laughs> yep. But uh, also the fact that there's not just one of, of them. There's This is kind of a name that this kind of uh, network of women Ferengi have kind of taken on, representing, you know, all, all these women who have kind of escaped the strictures of Ferengi society and, and set up these little... Uh, capitalist <laughs> ventures for themselves. I thought that was really interesting. And, and it made me think like, I kind of want to see this come up again somehow, because that's a really cool idea. But yeah, I would, I would love to have, honestly write more about Brit. Her, her name is Brit the Baron, mm -hmm. um, her little, her little enterprise. Um, because that was, that was really fun to sort of come up with and, and imagine, like I said, I just like the Fringy. Um, I, I love the way they went from being these sort of, lame um villains to like just like really complicated and funny and, and like sort of a commentary on on modern americans they definitely felt like the ds9 ferengi like you said but there were elements that made it feel like the earlier ferengi we saw like the whip was there you know oh yeah mm -hmm. of course you gotta have the whip right <laughs> <It's TNT. laughs> like the one guarding you know the place yeah. that they're at you know i was like that seems like the early tng ferengi right yeah. there like, they're doing the you know all the grunt work of the place <laughs> so is there anything else in this book though that we haven't touched on that you'd like to tell us about yeah i guess i i um we did sort of touch on it but um something that was really fun for me to write was the sort of pat like sort of creating the the betazoid um cultural myth that the, the objects were built around. And I was kind of expecting the, the canon people to be like, you can't do this, um, but they, they let me do it. So I was like, oh, okay, awesome. Um, because I'm really into sort of cultural myths in general. And that was something, um, it was fun to sort of come up with the story of how these, why these objects are so important to the, to the Betazoids um, and to get to kind of imagine the pageant that sort of tells their, their story and the, the, the cultural hero Shiamara um, getting to sort of come up with that figure um, was really fun. Um, and that was, that was something that was, I, I didn't quite expect to get to do. So I was excited that I got to do it. I kind of love the little bit of playing that you did with the, the pageantry and the story of it versus the reality of, of what happened. That was kind of fun where, you know, Picard was saying like, Oh, I, I learned a bunch of the story from the, you know, before the theft and all that. And, uh, is like, well, actually, you know, that's not entirely the story. Here's, here's the real story. That's, they like putting on a show. Yeah. <laughs> 
And that felt like something the Betazoids would do to me too. So (laughs) (laughs) was there any kind of message you were trying to get across to the reader in this book? Um, not totally. Um, just because so much of it was sort of plot driven and and just trying to have figured out stuff to do. Um, But I think um, maybe one message was, or the the sort of theme that I tried to use to link the two storylines was this idea of um, sort of ingenuity. If you're in a situation where you don't have sort of what you're used to having and being able to adapt, basically being able to kind of MacGyver things because that was sort of the, the Shiomara story. That was the whole, catalyst for um the plot with uh, with troy um and then and then also sort of the ferengi sort of do that the, the female ferengi sort of get that and then of course um with pressure on her um on her mission where she doesn't have the stuff she needs um so that was sort of what i was kind of trying to make the the overarching theme um of just sort of being able to think creatively and and kind of come up come away with stuff. Um, and then of course I just wanted to have that general Star Trek um sense of maybe we don't always understand each other, but we can find that common ground. Um like with Picard sort of coming to realize that even though he finds sort of the Betazoids tiresome at times, um <laughs> they kind of have like what they're doing is important. Um and of course um on the other the other storyline where like hey this just this idea of communication um, and being able to communicate with this entity that communicates in a very strange sort of fantastical way um, and how we kind of handle that or how they handle that. I I love a lot about this novel. This was a really enjoyable experience. And one of my favorite things, and we kind of touched on it earlier, of course, was uh, Luxana Troy and the kind of, elevation of her character a little bit in the eyes of other people. And I'm thinking specifically the scene where they're contacting the Romulan ambassador as well. And I I think we sometimes forget this, that there would all would be all these connections and stuff. And like, Waxana Troy has probably sat down in a room with Sarek and, and negotiated something at some point. And I I just love those little connections that kind of make the world seem a little bit bigger and, uh, make a bit more sense than what we sometimes get presented with in 44 minutes on right. screen. <laughs> yeah. I would love a whole story. That's just like Laxana Troy being an ambassador. Honestly. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. No, that would be a good one. I'm going to guess that maybe Laxana Troy and Deanna Troy are some of your favorite characters, obviously. Right. Right? Oh yeah. So yeah, what definitely. is it that you like? I mean, we kind of touched on Laxana Troy, but what do you like about Deanna Troy so much? Well, I was well, I was like Deanna, um, because she is she's always such an interesting character to me. And I know it's it sometimes comes across as sexist, um, in, in this day and age that she's sort of like the counselor and she's sort of in that healer role. Um, but I, that was one of the things I always liked about her, I always related to her, um, because I'm not, you know, watching that show as a little kid, I'm not, you know. I'm not going to be a soldier or anything like that. And so I always sort of like, Oh, maybe there is, there would be a place for me aboard um, a starship. Right. Because if I was going to be anything, I would probably be a counselor. Um, And I didn't always like the way the stuff they gave her to do, but I think that is an important role um, in terms of her sort of helping the captain and, and sort of maintaining the, um, sort of maintaining the peace with all those crew. You think about all those people who are 
crammed on the ship. And I know Star Trek, of course, everybody's supposed to get along all of the time, but I feel like her presence there kind of suggests that maybe there's some work to it, right? That she's kind of the one who's helping to make sure, hey, even these little things come up. Um, And that was always something that I I liked about her. Um, And of course, as a little kid, it was sort of like, oh, she gets to wear pretty dresses because I didn't realize, you know, (laughs) That's actually incredibly sexist that she's not wearing a uniform like everybody else. But um, I like that as an adult later on when she starts wearing her uniform. um, I always like that, too. We get to finally see her in her uniform. Yeah, we agree with that for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I think she even looks better in the uniform, you know? (laughs) Yeah, she does. Well, because like Star Trek TNG fashion is interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I always love to hear Marina Sirtis talk about it too, where she says, you know, they put me in a uniform and suddenly, amazingly, they found interesting things for the character to do, you know? Like it really affects a lot of, you know, the thinking behind the character and stuff, right. the impression both to the audience and to the writers. So, right. yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it's a visual medium. And so when you, you don't have her in the uniform, she's just like, she's on a different level than the rest of the commanding crew when she's mm-hmm. supposed to be on their level. Um, so I think that I do think, like I said, as an adult, I totally get that she needs to be in a uniform, but like as a little kid, like six year old, like, oh, she's a princess, right? <laughs> so. Well, I, you know, when I was younger and I was watching TNG, I remember thinking, oh, she probably doesn't wear a uniform because people wouldn't feel it to like they could open up so much to her as a counselor if she's in uniform. It it would right. be too scary, but if it, she looks more relaxed and more approachable, but I will say in the real world of things, Marina Sirs probably enjoyed wearing the dresses because those look more comfortable than probably wearing a uniform all day. They totally did. Yeah. And I, I actually think you're right. I think I always thought that was sort of the, the justification is that because she doesn't be like incense could come talk to her and feel like they can actually open up to her. Um, so I do get that as well. So you, you got through it. You you were nervous about getting into the book and writing it, but you got it done. Did, were there any notes that came back to you that said, uh-uh, don't do that? Um, There wasn't anything like major. It was mostly kind of like plot stuff um, or sort of characterization notes where they're like, okay, this isn't going to work. So we're going to need to sort of retrig- re, you know, rejigger it a little bit so that it'll work. Um, they were always good about giving me suggestions. There was nothing like that comes back. They're like, okay, this entire storyline, not going to work. Right. Uh, so it wasn't anything major. Uh, it was mostly just sort of character notes. And um, I actually had another character. The, probably the biggest change was I had, I had created this commanding officer um, on that, who was on the, um, the planet that Riker and Crusher go to um, because I wasn't thinking, cause it was sort of like they, they basically brought up like, why would Riker need to go if they already have a commanding officer? Like what would be the point? Um, so I had to kill her off, but it was really sad because she was, um, and again, I'm blanking on the name of the species, but she was the uh, the cat species um, oh, okay, from, yeah. the, from, from the animated series. And so I had so much fun writing her because she was a cat um, and she'd <laughs> like hiss and stuff. Um, so that was that was probably the biggest change. And I, I, I totally, again, I totally get logistically like, yeah, it wouldn't make sense for Riker to have gone if they had a commanding officer already. Um, so she had to get killed off at the start. Um, you never see her in the book, but she was oh, no. she was one of my creations that I was very fond of. Oh no, that's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, maybe you could do a prequel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, have you ever been to a Star Trek convention? I have not actually. Um, I would love to go someday. 
Okay. And then if you do go, are you going to cosplay? <laughs> um, I'm not much of a cosplayer, but I would consider it. <laughs> and then would you go as a cat person? <laughs> no, I probably wouldn't. Honestly, my dream cosplay was always to go as Luxana Troy um, because she has this one gown in TNG that is like, the way my, I remember my boyfriend at the time and I watching it is this incredibly like modest gown, but then she has this sort of sweet out sweetheart cutout that shows her cleavage. So mm, it's like, she's wearing yeah. long sleeves and this long ball gown. And then you can see, still see her cleavage. And I always just like kind of love that dress <laughs> and it was like sparkly. <laughs> and so I always wanted to, if I was ever going to cosplay as a Star Trek character, I would definitely do Luxana Troy. Um, just so I have an excuse to basically wear a ball gown. <laughs> <laughs> that particular costume, I think it's the one they based like her playmates action figure on yes, too. <laughs> yeah. I have that action figure. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's true too, that when you, if you dress like her at a convention, you can act like her too. Yeah. That's, I, I'm not sure I have her personality, but I guess it would give permission <laughs> to, to just sort of flit around and be Lexana for a while. <laughs> So you talked about how cool it would be to have like an entire book about Luxana Troy and her uh, ambassadorial duties and stuff with that in mind and, and not necessarily saying that's one, you know, that might be coming down the line or anything. Would you like to do another Star Trek novel? And are there maybe any plans for for that? I would love to do another one. Um, there are not any plans so far as I know, um, but I would certainly, if they ask me, I would certainly say yes. If they ask me, I'll tell them, let her do another one. <laughs> yes, <Hey>. absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad I got some people in my corner. <laughs> because honestly, totally. you know, going into this, I mean, I, I, I had a feeling, you know, I, I trust their judgments of picking authors. It's like, okay, this is her first one is, you know, am I going to like it? I'm going to like her style. And I really did. And it, it felt like TNG. It read like, you know, it felt like an episode, but you know, on a bigger stage, you know, it can go and yeah. do things that you can't do in an episode. And the characters were spot on. And I really enjoyed it. It was, it was really enjoyable read. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to hear that. Absolutely. And ditto. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about your other books. I mean, I know you have a whole list of them, but you know, is there something similar about this book that you kind of work into your others? Um, definitely some of the, the, the sort of super inhuman alien is something that I've done. Um, I had a book, I have a book called Star's End, which was a, a space opera type sort of type book. Um, that's probably my closest to Star Trek, although it's not remotely like Star Trek. Uh, it's just in space. So, um, but it, it had, it would have, it was really exploring a lot of those themes of sort of like aliens, um, that we don't understand, um, that, was definitely um that's because that's like i said that's something i've always i've always really enjoyed um i also wrote a couple of ya fantasy novels um that are currently published as magic of blood and sea that were definitely kind of that they're not they don't feel like star trek but they were definitely sort of inspired by that sort of adventure like going on like exploring new worlds kind of feel especially of like the original series um even though it's a fantasy novel, but it involved the character. It just involved sort of bouncing around to lots of different places, which was something I sort of did in, in this Star Trek book as well, particularly with the Troy episode. I was like, I wanted, I wanted to be able to have them go to different planets. Like, Oh, they go to the wind, like the ice planet, right. <laughs> you know, they, they go to, they go to um, the sort of forest planet um, to kind of have them bounce around and explore 
different different places. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there anything coming out that you that you're currently working on that our listeners might be interested in checking out if they want to read more of your works? Um, yeah, so I actually I have a fantasy novel called The Beholden that's going to be published um, actually the very start of next year, um, which is just is a very it's just like that kind of classic epic fantasy. Um, <clears throat> and then I have a actually have a romance. I mean, I don't know how many of our start I have a crossover there is, but I actually have a romance novel that hasn't been announced yet officially that'll be coming out probably next year sometime. Um, and I had a, a YA novel that just recently came out last year um, called Forget This Ever Happened, which again has those sort of, ali- they're not aliens really, but um, the sort of intelligences that we, we, we don't understand and we try to communicate with. So if, if we, honestly, if people were interested in that aspect of this book, they might actually really like Forget This Ever Happened, even though it's sort of a YA like teen book (laughs) but it has it has like some weird sort of alien creatures in it the one thing i want to cover before we end the show with you is just to let you know uh my daughter who's 19 wants to be a writer and she reads a lot of ya books and she's writing all the time like i have to leave the family room because she paces in the circle and she has a dry erase board where she's writing all <laughs> ideas and she's written several novels nothing published or anything but she's just you know it's practice practice and write 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 to get better and better how did you get into writing and then it led to publishing um so i've always loved to write i was sort of like your daughter actually um i used to write just constantly um i remember in fifth grade we had this assignment where we would have like our spelling, you know, our list of spelling words and we have to write stories using those words. And most people would write like a page and I would write like these 20 page stories, 30 <laughs> page stories uh, that my, my poor teacher had to read. Um, but that, so like, I just always loved writing. I used to tell myself stories constantly. Um, and I, um, in, in college, I actually, the way I kind of got into publishing was I, I minored in creative writing and then went on to get an MFA in creative writing. So that was sort of on the literary um, literary fiction side of things, but I've always loved science fiction and fantasy and horror. So by basically I was writing that stuff in my MFA. I just did it and didn't really care what they said. <laughs> um, and then when I, when I graduated from that and I started focusing on getting published, that was sort of when I discovered science fiction conventions and sort of the online science fiction publishing world, um, which was how I sort of, started learning about the publication process. Um, but I definitely did a ton of writing before I started even thinking about publication. It was basically because I graduated my my MFA program and I was like, oh, now what do I do? <laughs> right? So I guess I got to find out what the next steps are. And then you made it to the 24th century. I did. I did. And then I got to have <laughs> this like, huge, amazing goal of, uh, of writing a Star Trek book. Oh, I'm so jealous. I couldn't <laughs> write one. I know I couldn't. Dan and I kind of fantasize we'll write one together someday. <laughs> but I, I think I would have good ideas, but I, I just don't like my writing. I would have to rely on Dan for that. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, if people want to follow you online, where can they find you? Um, so I am, uh, it, honestly, that's probably the easiest is to just go to my website, um, which is CassandraRoseClark.com. And that's Clark with an E at the end, C-L-A-R-K-E. Um, if you Google my name, it all, it all pops up. Um, I have a link, I have links to all my social media. Uh, I'm on Twitter at CRC.com, which is like the worst handle to say audibly. It's S-E-E 
O-R-S-E-A, like C or C, um, which is supposed to be my initials. Um, when I came up with it, I didn't realize. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you were getting too creative there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook as well. I'm on I'm all those the standard social media sites. Um, but I have links to them from my website. So that's probably the easiest way to find me. Great. Let, let me tell you something. Um, I'm going to ask you a favor because Dan has a YouTube channel where he talks Star Trek and he just needs a few more followers. <laughs> so, Dan, tell us about that. Uh, my YouTube channel is uh, Kurtrats Productions, and Kurtrats is just Star Trek backwards. So it's uh, youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. <laughs> Great. And where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats, again, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, and of course, in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook, my favorite hangout on the entire internet. And you can find me on the internet Bruce Gibson spelled backwards. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm on the internet too. Unfortunately, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and I'm occasionally on the star Wars report podcast and been doing some guest things on literary tracks. So that, and of course we got our Facebook group. We have the best Facebook group. Uh, it's a discussion group. Cassandra will let you in. And everybody's positive, <laughs> right? Positively track. It's wonderful. It's great. So everyone just search for us there. We have the Facebook page, but then we have the Facebook group, the discussion group. So look for that. And we also have a Goodreads group, too, where you can follow which novels we're going to review here on the show. So there you go. So, Cassandra, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. And I hope to have you back sometime and maybe to discuss another Star Trek book that you wrote. That would be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. That would be terrific. <laughs> and thanks, everyone, for listening. Find us on Patreon to support the show. We'll have little perks in there for you. And a reminder to everyone, and that is stay positive. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.